Welcome to Notes from the Field, brought to you by Noeo Science. Good to see you, Will. Oh, it's good to be seen. It's good to be here. Yeah. So, do you want me to introduce yeah, this? Yeah, I think th- I think so. Let's hear what you've got what you've got planned for us today. Well, I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the things that we've learned in biology, either biological facts or processes or behaviors, you know, basically anything that we've learned formally, so it was sort of very academic, and then you learned it, memorized it, whatever, and then you actually experienced it, you saw it for reals in the lab or in the field. Yeah. And how that experiential aspect, that incarnational aspect, really indelibly fixes it. I mean, some people are so smart that they learned it in the academic setting, you know, in lecture, and that's all they need. Yeah. But uh, for most normal people, you need more than that. You need even the people who can learn it really well academically, it always benefits when they actually see it for real. Right. And uh, so I wanted to just have you and I share those types of experiences. And I figured yours Sounds might great. lean towards birds. And yeah. that's really good. <laughs> that's really good. My I'll experiences encourage. tend to lead towards birds or you lean. You got, Hopefully got, they lean lead to birds also. Yes. Yeah, I'm all for birds. Don't get me ever get me wrong just because I like to Just because see you the came cre- to the, the light creepy, late. <laughs> <laughs> I like the creepy crawly yeah. things, you know, and they need I feel like my calling is I'm their PR man yeah. for the cre- creepy crawlies. Yes. And, and they need one. They do. And they so I'm thankful. Need, it, birds do not need a PR no, man. No, they really don't. They kind of sell themselves. <laughs> they do. Yeah. They do. No, Although, that's an interesting point. Um, yeah. You know, I tend to, I tend to, I think, appreciate the hands-on or in the field, being able to see it and touch it, smell it. Prior, I think the way my brain works, I tend to be more effective at learning if I have that part first. First, but some so people you, don't. No, I I like it either way. Okay, uh, learning it in the field first, and then you're in lecture and you hear the t- teacher explain this particular fact, or f- and you go, I, I, I yeah. saw that. Yep. You know, and and then the lecture part comes after. I I like it either way, but very cool. Yeah. So um, I'll I'll jump right go, in. I guess. Yeah, go okay. For so it. we'll start with maybe just a kind of a simple one that was interesting, um, and of course this is going to be heavily ornithological. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's actually a. <laughs> I'm going to. I'm huh. going to do it. Uh, I think there's a. I'm trying to remember his name now. There's a ornithology is a famous jazz number. I can't remember who first did that that number. Hmm. But anyway, look up ornithology if you're a jazz fan. And you can't, you don't necessarily take away the fact that it's about birds, but it's a good piece. Uh, so my first ornithology uh, phenomenon, I guess, uh, talking about bird reproduction and different, different ways that birds court, mm-hmm. uh, typically the male courting the female. One of the phenomena, uh, one of the interesting ways that God designed these birds to, to uh, attract one another uh, to reproduce is this phenomenon called lecking. 
Okay. Yes, and I so know it. A, a lek is L-E-K. It's a weird word, mm-hmm. um, but it simply means uh, these are birds that have a, a specific defined patch of ground where all the males are going to show up. And they tend to show up year after year after year. These these become historical. Kind of like a mountain man rendezvous. <laughs> kind of is like a mountain man rendezvous. Girls over here, boys over here. And the boys dance. And they it's kind of like seven brides for seven brothers, maybe, mm-hmm. during that house raising scene where the the men are all dancing their tails off to attract the the ladies. Right. And that's what these that's what these uh for my a particular observation, the lecking species were the lesser prairie chicken. Okay. So I went to college in the upper Midwest in central Wisconsin, and there were uh, lesser prairie chicken lecks just south of town, maybe 45 minutes. A couple of upland uh, type of grasslands, if you can have an upland in Wisconsin. Yeah. It basically means it's just not soaking wet. <laughs> and so it, this is kind of a drier grassland area, and the, the lesser prairie chickens come in, and I was an active member of the Wildlife Society, right. which is a really pretty neat student-led academic organization. A lot of my colleagues were, were wildlife biology majors. I was a biology major, but I loved the wildlife. And so we'd go out about four in the morning before light, and there were some blinds set up out there. And I'd heard about lecking. I think this is the mm-hmm. way it worked for me. I think I'd heard about lecking in the classroom and lecking species. And these lecking species tend to be gallinaceous birds, birds right. that are game birds, they're chicken-like. They're, right. We think of them as, as Turkey, edible. Turkey, chicken, grouse, you know, yeah. chuckers. All the good eating, peasants, fat. Those are all gallant, uh, galliformes. Galliformes, that's right. And so this lesser prairie chicken, uh, they'd showed up, I think it was mid-April probably. And we we went to the... Uh, went to these little wooden plywood blinds and huddle mm-hmm. inside two of us. You know, it's probably 20 degrees oh, or less. And we're just waiting for the dawn. And then finally the dawn comes and we start hearing a, a, a little bit of a racket. The males uh, arrive and they, they, they very, it's kind of amazing how organized they are. They divvy up these little small areas that each one of them is really in possession of. And they're territorial towards the other birds if they encroach across these invisible lines, mm-hmm. maybe maybe a couple square meters in size. And they're doing this little dance and right. they're kind of stomping their feet around and then they're puffing up these big air sacs. Mm-hmm. And uh, kind of- I love the, that. The, yeah. I saw it on Disney in the Vanishing pra- Living Desert and Vanishing Prairie. With, that was, the, that was the, the bigger- Sage grouse? No, the prairie chicken. But oh, the, the, the greater prairie the, chicken. The greater one where it looked like- ye- Sunny side up yolks. Yeah, really orange. Really orange uh, air sacs that bloop. They make these crazy sounds and, they, um, and they're grotesque, to be honest. I mean, they're pretty <laughs> gaudy. And right. so they're doing this gaudy dance and the females are standing on the sidelines waiting. And the theory goes that they're going to be, this part of the concept I'd also learned in the classroom was sexual selection. Right. Uh, females so, selecting males based on certain characteristics. Right. And dancing ability, yeah. coloration of these air sacs. Yeah. All of it came together in this my is brain. the beginning of guys showing off. <laughs> That's exactly right. All this came together in my brain once I saw them doing it in the, in the Buena Vista yeah. uh, natural area in central Wisconsin. You know, that was kind of a monumental, a monumental um, experience for me. A lot of experiences there, especially for the ornithology class. I'm sure there were some basic biology lectures that connected to that, um, but this was mm-hmm. kind of a, a culminating great. ecological type of learning experience. Well, that's really experience. neat because I've taught about lecking in my ornithology elective, but yeah. never 
never have seen it. Okay, we need to we need to go to Central Idaho to a sage grouse lek next spring. Yes, yes, sir. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I'll check with my wife. Look at my schedule here. <laughs> well, that sounds um, great. One of the things uh, I'll just start off. I'll I'll build up, but one of the things that I learned in botany, some of my favorite classes, even though I'm more of a zoologist, my favorite classes were botanical because my botany professors were just the best. And yeah. I, I think it's because plants are a harder sell for most people. You know, they want to see animals and they want to, you know, animals do things and plants, they do things, but they don't move around. And, right. And, um, and so I feel like botanists have to uh, really or botany professors have to actually overcome that and be really interesting. Yeah. Because their subject matter is, um, you know, the zoologist doesn't have to try as hard. Right. Because the animals sell themselves. Yeah. They're so dynamic. Um, but anyway, I, I learned about ferns and fern life cycles. And if you've noticed on the bot, I, I think we talked about this when we talked about spore dispersal. Did I talk about fern? Catapults? Yes, I did. Okay, so I'm not going to talk about the the actual thing because I've already talked about it. But when I learned it, and then when I took a fern leaf that had fresh sori on the bottom, and I put it under a microscope and saw them, the sporangia curl back, you know, live. Oh, that's so cool! Curl back and then fling their spores. It was just amazing. Yeah. I knew it academically as a fact, but then when I saw it, it was just wow. Yeah. And so anytime I see fresh sporangia, I just want to get my stereo microscope out and put it under and see those guys in action. And I've always, I've, you know that I like architecture of plants and animals because yeah. I know that all of that just screams design, screams creation. And when I think of, how spores could easily be sprinkled out in other ways that would be effective. Yes, these guys fling them farther, but that selection, natural selection selects what's there. I know I'm just making one little point on yeah. a Darwin implication for Darwinism is, you know, natural selection selects. It doesn't design anything. And when you look at the the mechanical mechanism of the annulus that bends and turns the, the sporangium of a fern uh, inside out and then flings those spores. You know, I, I still don't know the mechanism. Usually botany tech, I don't even know. Probably they know. Yeah, some plant physiologists Some somewhere. plant physiologists figured it out, but right. it's just phenomenal. So that's, that's my, and I'll, I'll do one other one. And let you have a whack at yeah, it. Yeah. And just let me touch one thing there about natural selection. You know, and I'm not, I'm not saying for sure that th this is an example of an irreducibly complex machine, right. but it probably is. Um, just think about all of the little pieces necessary to build that catapult mm -hmm. precisely and yeah. have it function correctly. And at every step of every new generation and every step of building that apparatus, it had to be functional for some other reason. Until the apparatus itself was completely built. Right. To implicate or to state that natural selection is going to pick the most complicated, incredibly ornate mechanism to right. build by itself over time 
It's it's yeah. it's just and, a and, little and, bit uh, far fetched. And the timing, you know, the spores inside the sporangium, and and remember, there's dozens of sporangia in this little spot on the bottom of a fern leaf, which is called a sorus, plural sori. There's dozens of sporangia, and each sporangia is almost microscopic. And then you've got this belt of cells around it that forms a catapult. And the cells before it, they make the spores have to go through meiosis to, so that the spores are haploid. And so the catapult mechanism is time. The timing has to be right. Yeah. So the catapult mechanism, if it tried to do its thing, when the spores were halfway through meiosis, right? Bad news. You got to put the sheetrock on before the yeah, trim. Yeah, I mean, everything has to be timed right. So yeah. the spores are all ready, and then the mechanism peels back and flings the spores. And so, just everything about it screams, just screams creation. And so, and so, reading about that and then seeing it, seeing uh, it, yeah. Give us another. Oh, another one. This isn't really fantastic. It was just funny. I'd learn about slime molds in class. You know, it's one of those weird groups of organisms. It's in protista. It's sort of fungi-like, but it's a fungal-like protist. But it's one cell, and it's multinucleated. And I'd seen them on Petri dishes because the teacher would order them from a Carolina biological supply or something and come into the lab, and we'd see it on a Petri dish. But when we were... I was a professor at Liberty, and I was at the Virginia Herpetological Society meeting out in the, we were flipping logs looking for reptiles and amphibians. And I flipped a log looking for salamanders, and underneath the log was this, this slime mold, you know, the size of a silver dollar, a little bit bigger. Nothing fantastic other than I knew it was a slime mold just because it looks. Yeah. You know, it was Physerum. That was the genus. It was yellow. and uh, I yelled to the <laughs> to the nearest person. I think Terry Spawn was my um, the closest person to me. I yelled that they probably thought I was being attacked by a bear or something, guys. <laughs> and they ran over, and I was like a slime mold. And they were like, "Oh, yeah, <laughs> good." I mean, I I don't remember um, what their response was, but I was excited. Yeah, for seeing this slime mold. So that's awesome. That's Your a, turn. Okay, my turn. Uh, so took a plant taxonomy class in college. Um, I love botany too and took a, took a few botany courses and just really enjoyed studying plants, getting to, to key them out was just a joy. This whole class was based on keying them out. Every single week we had a quiz. There was one plant, one plant part, and we had to key that thing out. And that was the only question on the quiz. Uh, and then we were, you, were, you were either there for 10 minutes or you were there for an hour and a half wringing your hands. And so- Keying a plant. What do you mean? It wasn't keying it to keying species? Keying it to species. Oh, yeah. yeah. Just but looking at one- We would have, well, sometimes it would be- you'd have the whole plant. We, we might have a, a flower and a leaf from a tree oh, as an I example. See. Yep. And so I remember one being sweet gum as an example. Oh, yeah. And so there's great. a sweet gum leaf and the sweet gum ball. Right. And so keying out is this process of looking at all the characteristics of a- of an organism like a plant going, uh, using a book um, that describes the different features. And it's kind of like a dichotomous key where it's an either or, choose your own adventure yeah, yeah. novel. It, does the plant have netted venation or parallel venation? Right. That kind of thing. So we were, we, I took that class and just loved it. It was the same professor who taught introduction to botany. And then that summer I went home and I made a plant press 
And I just collected all the wildflowers I could find where right. my parents live uh, and keyed them out and just kind of made a botany uh, botany um, list for my parents' neck of the woods. Right, that's great. And it was just such a joy to uh, find species that I'd seen in the classroom or that were similar to ones uh, that I'd seen in the classroom. And I, I really got this, um, kind of got this itch for plant taxonomy. And so I had another chance to do a similar project uh, when I was on the North Slope of Alaska studying loons and shorebirds. Uh, we had basically 24 hours of daylight. Um, we had maybe four to six hours of sleep a night. And so we had time on our hands when we weren't tracking wow. the birds down. And so I made a plant press and I did a plant. So what were you, just moss up there? No, man, the tundra. <laughs> uh, <laughs> this was wet tundra polygon ponds and the wildflowers were really impressive. And so I made, a, I made a, a press collection of the wildflowers of that part of the Colville River Delta. That's great. Um, yeah. So plant presses, that's a really kind of yeah, a fun activity. That is great. Yeah. That is great. Oh, wow. Another thing that moving to animals and my favorite group, herps, if you haven't figured it out by now, herps <laughs> are reptiles and amphibians. And uh, one thing that I had taught over, well, I had learned probably in herpetology was way way earlier than when I was teaching it. So sometimes what, when you learned it first and when you taught it, it's all just kind of mushed together. You're, you know, what did I, re it's just, it's in your brain. Yeah. Okay. Yep. <laughs> Either through teaching it or through learning it or both. And then, so I knew that newts, especially the ones with particularly toxic skin, like the rough skin newt in our neighborhood, the California newt, the red-bellied newt down on, on the West Coast, they have very toxic skin and they're sort of a brown, rusty brown, olive brown dorsal surface. Yeah. And then a very bright orange or yellow belly. Are all newts that kind of general no, no. color scheme? There's other, other newts okay. in other parts of the world that don't have that. But they have a bright yellow belly, but they're sort of cryptic on the top. So they're sort of camouflaged there. But then if you harass them at all, like a predator's harassing them, they'll do this thing called the unken reflex. Ooh, I guess it's a German word. U-N-K-E-N, uh, unken -E reflex. Hmm. And they do, it's basically a backbend where their chin goes up, their front legs go up, their back you know, everything's just arched. It's kind of like, uh, like it's kind of like a, a baby when they're throwing a fit. Yeah. Yeah. They're arched. <laughs> and so the, their underbelly, their chin, particularly their chest and their tail will sometimes coil up and you'll see the underside of their tail, all of it very bright yellow or something bright color, something yellow, orange or whatever. And you know, I caught several newts around here, quite a few newts, but, and I would tap them a little bit to see if I can get them to do the unkin reflex and, uh, only knew it from textbooks. Yeah. And finally, just a few weeks ago, I caught a rough skin newt and, or somebody, one of my, one of my students caught the rough skin newt and then we were going to photograph it. And then I tapped it and boom. Oh uncan, man, unkin reflex. Did you and get was, a photo? Of I it? did get a photo. Oh, of that's it. so great. 
Yeah, and I was like, hey, they actually do this. I didn't know if uh, the textbook was pulling a fast one on me or or what, you know? I, we just, you know, believe things right. uh, by authority, and uh, it was neat to have that confirmed. Oh, that's awesome. And you were mentioning this before before the show. Um, you know, this, uh, we we can't just have a book of facts or our experiences. We really, right. we really need to operate with both. If we do, if they were only our experiences, then we, we would know precious little, precious little. <laughs> I think that's a very gracious way to say it. Absolutely. And if we right. only use a textbook, oh golly, oh, we're yeah, just yeah, kind of we, in we, denial we, of, we would of reality. be sort of this walking encyclopedia. Yeah. And, and, um, and there are some people that are very, they just are very, they hunger for information. Right. And they're constantly feeding on it and learning. A lot of kids are particularly, they're just sponges for knowledge. But you want to make sure that those types of kids get out and actually see uh, some of this stuff for real and not just have it all be encyclopedia entries in their brain. Yeah. So maybe an example of that, uh, just fresh for me. Uh, this week was the Logos School Natural History Camp, um, and a lot of the sixth grade students learn learn birds. Mm-hmm. They're really good about teaching local species. Good uh, sixth grade, and then there's a, I believe it's earlier as well, and then of course biology in tenth grade. Uh, but there's a couple students um, who hadn't seen. I think one student who hadn't seen a frog before hadn't held a frog in the hand. Oh wow! And so we went up to Pond Nine for part of uh, one of our hikes, and there were Great. plenty of. I believe were those are those mostly leopard or are they mostly Columbia spotted there? Columbia spotted, no okay. leopards here. Okay, so there there were about ten or, Columbia or the, spotted sunning the, themselves. Uh, Pacific chorus frog. Yep, didn't see any of those guys. That would be cool. Which is a tree frog. It's in the Pacific tree frog. Tree frog. It, it used to be tree frog. Now it's chorus frog. Oh, but they're okay. In the, they're in the tree frog family. Gotcha. So one of these kids had never held a frog, and so That's all great. the kids are grabbing them, and this this uh, boy got to hold one. Another thing that was really fun, kind of similarly, everyone learns about woodpeckers and the fact that they 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 drill they drill cavities in trees to nest in, or they use existing holes to nest in. Of course, they dig for insects in under tree bark, and and you hear them hammering away. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had two really awesome woodpecker sightings. One, we saw a bird fly to this tree and disappear, and so we wrapped around the tree as a group. There were maybe ten of us. And there was a hole. There was a hole about 10 feet up in the tree. Perfect circular hole. It looked like it was fresh. And we thought, huh, that bird's disappeared. And I was speculating maybe it's a chickadee, maybe it's a nuthatch. And mm-hmm. we backed up because we hadn't seen the bird well that flew. We backed up and the, I think it's the same boy uh, saw the woodpecker come out of the hole and fly away. And so we stood there and waited and we watched this downy woodpecker male go back and forth and back and forth feeding its young. How did you know maybe it was a male? Uh, 10 to 15 minutes. The males have a little red uh, splotch okay. on the back of their head. So most uh, most woodpeckers, at least in our neck of the woods, uh, one of the best ways to tell male from female is the female tends to lack red, at least for downies and harries and a mm-hmm. couple other species. And the male has a little red. They're otherwise identical in, in okay. appearance. Yeah. So we just got to watch this. Um, that's great. So that's, uh, he'd, we'd heard of downy woodpeckers. We, of course, know about frogs, but getting to handle them or see them. And it was just really kind of a awesome experience. That's great. This is not so happy in it. Well, it's it's not horrible, but one of the other things in herpetology that you learn as uh, part of a defense mechanism is caudal autotomy. 
<laughs> I know what that is. You know what that is. <laughs> That's a fancy way of saying that you lose your tail if a predator or something is after you. And there's a couple lizards in our area that are really good at caudal. Caudal means tail. Autotomy means self-cutting. And there's a couple lizards in our area that can do it. The northern alligator lizard and the western skink. And there's one particular spot that I like to go up and look at this one rocky outcropping flip rocks and catch those two lizards. And on more than one occasion, unfortunately, when you're holding it, you try to make sure you get the body. It's very easy for inexperienced people to catch the lizard and they squirm and then you wind up with the tail and then you grab the tail and pop, the tail comes off. And it's usually not a death sentence for the lizard. The cleavage break is actually not between vertebrae. It actually goes right through a vertebra. It's, a, wow. it's amazing. So it's like These, a perforated vertebra. Yeah, it's, it's pre-perforated pre vertebra where the, the muscle contraction just cracks the vertebra in two. Wow. And, and then there's all this vasoconstriction, so there's hardly any bleeding. And the tail comes off and then wiggles. So it's just a, a, a wonderful little escape mechanism because the predator winds up with this, uh, often winds up with a tail in its beak or whatever. I'm blaming birds. <laughs> and, and, the, and the tail's wiggling like crazy. And then the animal scurries away and lives to tell the tale. Lives to not tell. <laughs> to tell about its tail. <laughs> so, yeah, lives to tell the tale about losing its tail. And, you know, I just see it in textbooks and all of that. But then when I actually saw it and the wiggle was wiggling, uh, the tail was wiggling like crazy and the uh, hardly any bleeding at the stump. It was just, again, a real field experience that really indelibly printed that concept in my brain. Yeah. That's neat. You know, since you kind of went slightly morbid, I'm going to go more morbid. And it's it's kind of a sad story, but I learned I learned a great deal through it and it was kind of just a, a reality check. We live in a, a world of of death and disease. Yeah. Um and so I'd been I'd been uh, researching birds and and bird watching for a couple of years. There was a new animal physiology professor at college who replaced my advisor. My advisor was the long-term animal phys guy. Uh, who studied hibernation in these ground squirrels, among other things. A new new fizz guy came in, and he he was mostly interested interested in energetics in in songbirds, mm -hmm. um, and uh, determining uh, metabolism and determining how much how much fat, how much protein a lot of these songbirds especially need in the winter. And mm -hmm. so we'd set up some mist nets. There's a, a wonderful little nature reserve on campus called the Schmeekly Reserve, and there's a little lake and a nice kind of mixed deciduous conifer forest there in central Wisconsin. And so we, he was conducting a field study there where he set up mist nets and then he would uh, take some metabolic indicators from each bird that we caught. And he had a couple focal species. One was uh, chickadees and a couple of other winter songbirds. And so I went out with him for, a, he needed volunteers. I volunteered and went out one morning with him. It was cold. It was probably single digits or, or maybe a little higher Wisconsin in the winter. Mm -hmm. And I uh, got there and uh, put up the mist net because you don't want to leave them out overnight because the birds hit it and they'll just freeze. 
Right. Um, but uh, he, he uh, we put the mist net up and uh, Chickadee hit the mist net. And so got the Chickadee. I got the Chickadee out of the mist net. He let me take it out. I'd handled a few birds uh, mm-hmm. through, uh, through a couple of other projects and got this little Chickadee in my hand. And we were starting to take measurements of the length of the wing. He would kind of blow on the breast to, to get an indication of how much fat. You can actually see through the thin skin and see the fat uh, that's present on the breasts of wow. these songbirds. Um, and that chickadee died in my hand. Oh man. It was the, it was terrible. I was, huh. it was upsetting. Wasn't your fault. But no, but it yeah. was, it was kind of a humble reminder of. Had a heart attack or something? Yeah, that's what we presume. A humble reminder of when you handle wildlife, uh, when you are mm-hmm. interrupting or disturbing them, you're necessarily introducing stress. Mm-hmm. And especially when it's single digits, maybe it's a first year bird. Maybe this bird hasn't had much success in, in getting a lot of food you know, this, this bird succumbed mm-hmm. uh, to the elements in my yeah. hand. And so, yeah, that re- yeah. reminds me of when I was catching a Idaho giant salamander larva. We were flipping rocks up at El Dorado Gulch up in Northern Idaho, near Harvard, Idaho, and flipped a rock, saw this larval Idaho giant. So it was, it was probably about four or five inches and I picked it up and was looking for others. And I would occasionally dip my hand uh, in the water, but they, they are used to very highly oxygenated, fast, cold water. And their fluffy gills are very small because they don't need as much surface area. Like, uh, salamander, larval salamanders in ponds have much more plume, plumose gills okay. sticking out. They're just big and fluffy. They need more surface area to collect the oxygen from the still water. Yeah. But on a cascade, these are small tufts of uh, fluffy gills around their neck. And I was dipping them in the water every once in a while just to keep them hydrated, not to. But a minute later, I, you know, I, he, was, he died in my hand. Yeah. I don't think it was from a heart attack. I, was, I think it was from lack of oxygen because the, the, he, did, he wasn't getting the same kind of flow of cold oxygenated water over those gills. Yeah. That was a bummer. And, um, but yeah, so I, I hear you. You spend enough time in the field, right? And you're going to, you're going to see some things like that. Maybe I'll do one more. Yeah. Okay. Sounds good. Uh, So this one I'll, I'll try to, uh, we'll pick up a precise one here. I spent a summer on St. George Island in the Bering and working with Fish and Wildlife Service, we were, we were studying, we were monitoring seabirds. And so uh, one of these small islands, the Pribilof Islands, about 800, 800 miles west of Anchorage. Um, this is the home of the northern fur seal. This is the home of a couple of, of a, a relatively restricted regional bird species like kitty wakes, yeah. uh, which are gull, and then auklets. You had talked about pr- Pribilof Island yeah. before. Yeah, so we were out there, and uh, one of the little side projects we were doing when we weren't well, monitoring the seabird populations, we were trying to get a handle on what, what kind of... Um, invertebrate populations, the least auklets were feeding on. And so there's most least auklets, I believe, I'm a little bit rusty on this, but I believe they're, they're kind of coastal dwelling and they'll nest in the cavities of the cliffside. This was a slightly inland um, population because there was a couple of boulder fields covered in lichen in the interior of the island. And, and early in the morning, all the least auklets would kind of climb out of their little caverns and they'd head out in mass to sea to eat. And they'd come back and, and, and sometimes they'd be bringing feed, uh, food for the young. Um, and so uh, these 
Uh, these least auklets, they return, um, I'd say, uh, dusk-ish. Uh, mm-hmm. We had a little bit of a we had a little bit of a night there because we weren't above the Arctic Circle. But these least auklets, really small, uh, least, smallest of the seabirds or the alcids in our in our part of the world, and so they would come back. And we would, um, and we were going to try to get a sample of their food to see what they were eating. And so the best that anyone had come up with yet was to hide among the rocks, and then as they flew in to land, swing a net up in the air and hope you catch something. And so surprisingly, we caught a few. And they, these auklets have the uh, just the lovely habit of as soon as you uh, grab a hold of them, they just regurgitate. <laughs> and so, so they made food collection really easy, which was nice. Right. Um, but, and so I'd read about copepods and amphipods and been taught about them in- but to in... see them barfed up <laughs> was another matter. <laughs> to see them barfed up was another matter. And so we, we, we had our vials out and we took a vial or two per bird and then put them in the cooler and shipped them off to the lab. Um, but it gave us a good sense for these deep diving seabirds that are living off of invertebrates. How deep, how deep do they go? Uh, I don't remember exactly how deep the, the least auklets uh, go. Auklets Aukle- and birds going. I mean, when... They can go several hundred meters. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Just shocking how... Uh, how And also shocking that, you know, just suspended in this water column is this incredibly the... rich invertebrate oh, ecosystem. Yeah. Tons of copepods and yeah. Um, so yeah. think think uh, think marine roly polies, tiny little roly polies, or kind of marine yeah. fleas. Or, yeah, or yeah, like tiny tiny shrimp like creatures. Yep, they're crustaceans and yeah, that's great. That was fun. Um, I'll I'll just quickly end with one, and that is the dragon the dragonfly. So doing my masters in entomology, we learned about dragonfly behavior hunting. Uh, and the, the, uh, immatures or nymphs, they're incomplete metamorphosis. So, um, they don't have what you would call a grub, something that's like totally different. It's pretty different because these guys live underwater, right? The nymphs, right. They don't look really anything like the dragonfly, but they're not as different as say a caterpillar is to a butterfly. Right. And, uh. Uh, on these dragonfly nymphs, you've got this um, lower lip called the labium, uh, part of the one of the mouth parts of insects, and this is a raptorial labium, as in it's hinged and extensible. And so, um, you know, we learned about these raptorial labiums on uh, labia on these dragonfly nymphs, but then when I sained one up and grabbed a big dragonfly nymph and grabbed his lower lip and pulled it out. <laughs> and I was like, wow, these guys are amazing. Now the adults don't have, they have labium, but not a raptorial hinged labium. Wow. And so I always love to pull uh, a dragonfly nymph when we have field trips for my students. Um, I catch a dragonfly nymph and grab its uh, labium and unfold it and see how it extends about an inch or so. Wow. And grabs small little uh, either invertebrates or even tadpoles and uh, hauls them back to the mouth to um, eat them. So again, another one of those confirmations of what you've actually learned in the textbook. But um, just to wrap things up, um, we've we've uh, both 
presented several, and we could probably come up with more. But uh, when you go out in nature, it's uh, don't expect to see amazing or interesting behavior all the time, uh, unless you're watching a nature documentary. Yeah, uh, these nature documentaries often these cameramen are sitting forever looking at the animal or whatever for for a long time doing not much of anything and often they're just in the field um waiting for that very very small um moment you know in planet earth there was that snow leopard that you know this guy was in a blind forever you know i don't know several weeks up there you know i don't know how he kept from losing his mind. <laughs> right. But then all of a sudden, you know, action, you know, in this, um, this snow leopard is chasing during a flurry sort of there's snow fall, there's flurries. And this snow leopard is chasing an Ibex down the mountainside. And I mean, that is cool, but that just doesn't happen all the time. That was earned that. Yes. And <laughs> so, um, you know, I studied box turtles for three years, field research, and most of the time, the vast majority of the time, I'd see a box turtle either under the leaves doing nothing or on top of the leaves doing nothing. Uh, <laughs> and and <laughs> only once I'd seen uh, a box turtle actively eating an earthworm and one that uh, I'd seen devour a mushroom actually i'd seen the half the mushroom missing but i didn't actually see <laughs> <laughs> they're really flamboyant these box I, turtles. I could tell the box turtle had eaten the mushroom but um <laughs> i actually didn't see him biting it and so um you know don't expect to see stuff but um that doesn't mean it doesn't happen so keep your observational skills uh you know on alert and look carefully at things because a lot of the things that are really interesting happen not just in some faraway exotic place, but in North America, in your backyard. Uh, you know, there's a lot of cool things to be seen, but you really have to hone those observational skills. Any last Absolutely. words of encouragement? Yeah, I just say um, get make sure whatever field of science you're interested in or your children are interested in, mm -hmm. give them an opportunity for hands-on stuff. You mm -hmm. know, it's, it's, I'm just thinking of how many of my mechanic friends or, or friends who are doing home construction on their own, they watch a YouTube video or they learn about a process and then they go do it. And mm -hmm. so I think the the principle that we're putting forward can apply to almost any area of, yes. of work. It doesn't have to be biology. Yeah, it, it definitely is. doesn't apply to, uh, and it definitely does apply to every field of science as well. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, so uh, flight and and physics of, of of flight and all the forces, you know, paper airplanes. Yeah, you know, uh, just just make sure that there's a there's a healthy time for. Um, getting your hands on something and and, and yeah, looking your hands and observing your sleeves, and yep. and getting your hands dirty, seeing seeing things for real and not just in the textbook. Yep. Amen. Amen. We'll see you next time. All right. Will. See you, Gordon. Thanks. Thank you for listening. And remember, for all your homeschool science needs, go to noeoscience.com. That's n o e o science.com.